As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not him, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Well, it's good to be with you today. Actually, at my age, it's good to be anywhere. Um, for those of you who don't know me, consider yourself lucky. Now, I'm one of the elders of the church here, and I say that because I do a lot of interims, and I'm gone. Uh, Nate calls me minister at large, and I'm gone a lot. And uh, a couple years ago, I came back from an interim, and I was at coffee, and some guy who was new to the church asked me, so who's this Wayne Murray people talk about? And uh, I was strongly tempted to ask him what people are saying, but I didn't do that. I preached the last five weeks at uh, First Baptist Church of Spring Lake. They're without a pastor, and they decided to have Tom be their interim. So he's starting there today, and uh, it looks like I'm being considered at a church in uh, South Haven, so I'll be gone again. But it's good to be here today and to share the Word of God with you. I'd like you to turn your Bibles to uh, John chapter 9, which is the passage that Josh read to us. He read the first verses, and uh, I would like you to follow along as I read the rest of the chapter. In John chapter 9, beginning in verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he's like him. And he kept saying, I'm the man. So they said to him, well, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. And he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? He said, I don't know. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him, how did he receive his sight? And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Well, some of the Pharisees said, well, this man is not from God then for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. And so they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, How is this your son whom you say was blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Now his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anybody should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, "Glory, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that although I was blind, now I see. They said to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? 
And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciples. We are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anybody is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. Having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So I hope you see the, the, the interesting, I mean, this is, a, this is an incredible passage. So, so one day Jesus walking down this uh, busy Jerusalem street and he saw a man blind from birth. Now you know that the streets of any ancient city were littered with beggars and crippled people and the blind and the diseased. Every street was a marketplace of human suffering and the diseases that modern medicine routinely treat were crippling handicaps in the ancient world and there was no relief. No healing. It was no different than the city of Jerusalem. However, unlike the usual citizens of Jerusalem, Jesus' eyes didn't just skip over this man. He stopped in front of him, and he spoke to him. I was in a large foreign city some years ago with a missionary, and, uh, and I was shocked at the human debris that ebbed and flowed on the streets. People with bodies grotesquely twisted and distorted and unbearable, unspeakable suffering. I, I couldn't handle it. I tried to avert my eyes, and I, I couldn't. And I asked the missionary, he said, how do you deal with this? He said, deal with what? I said, oh, the human wreckage everywhere you look. He said, oh, that. You get used to it. Well, it's obvious from this passage that Jesus never got used to it. He was moved with compassion on this poor man, and he healed him. Now, this episode is very important for several different reasons. First of all, it was obviously a divinely ordained incident designed to display the extraordinary power of God that rested in Jesus. It was intended to provide additional proof that he was indeed the Messiah. That's the, that's the primary significance of this passage. But I want to focus on something that's lesser but nevertheless powerfully important, and that is this incident showcases the spirit of Jesus toward unfortunate people. He loved them. He cared deeply for them. He worked miracles on their behalf, which was not the case with the other people in the story. So on the one hand, you've got Jesus, who is arrested in mid-walk by the plight of a blind man, full of compassion for the man. At the other extreme is the blind man himself, and his, his response to Jesus is what we might call shock and awe. In between Jesus and the blind man are four other groups of people. There's no shock and awe and precious little compassion. And I want to look at them for a minute because there could be representatives of each of those groups sitting in this room this morning. Group number one is the disciples. So whereas Jesus saw a blind man, 
and was moved with, with compassion, the disciples saw a theological problem. You notice in verse 2. So Jesus, whose fault is it that this guy was born blind? Was it his parents' sin or was it his own? You know, it's kind of like an accident where somebody runs off the road, hits a tree, and the paramedic is trying to stabilize the injured driver. And meanwhile, two policemen are debating whether the guy was drunk or texting. Because at that point, it doesn't matter whether he's text or drinking. At that point, we got somebody who desperately needs help. The age-old assumption is that when somebody's life is hit with disaster, it's because they sinned and God is clobbering them with judgment. That's what Job's friends thought, and they were irritated with him, and he couldn't think of any sins to confess, and they, they hounded the poor guy to distraction. The disciples in this passage are not wondering if this guy's blindness was due to some sin. They've already taken that for granted. They moved on to the next question, which is, who's sinned? And, and, and here's where you see their ridiculously flawed logic. Since he was blind from birth, it was either his parents' sin, or, or did you catch this? His own. How does a person sin before they're born? Is there such a thing as prenatal sin? Now, now we might laugh, but in the theolo endless theological dis uh, discussions the rabbis did, they came to believe that it is possible for an infant to sin in the womb before birth. And frankly, I think there might be something to it because my oldest used to throw tantrums in the womb, punching and kicking and bashing his head against my poor wife's ribs every time he saw kale coming down the tube. <laughs> he did not act like a Christian. The Apostle Paul talked about foolish and unlearned questions. And here's one if I ever heard it. Standing in front of a man who has spent his entire life sightless, living on the meager alms he could beg from sympathetic pedestrians, and they're wanting to discuss whose fault is it that he's blind. They treated him like an object, not a man. They were, they were so jaded by the human wreckage that they were callous to it. Not, not a you're not seeing a shred of sympathy flowing from the disciples at this point. Now, let's not be too hard on them because uh, our own attitudes toward the unfortunate sometimes are uncomfortably close to theirs. Not to pick on the medical community too hard, but when I'm in major physical discomfort, hoping for a healing touch from some doctor, and the nurse announces your 10 o'clock is here, it's not Mr. Murray or Wayne Murray or the guy with pericarditis, it's your 10 o'clock. Kind of dehumanizing. Or when you're in a room writhing with pain and she announces, you got a hernia in bay two. That, that's all I am now, just a pesky hernia. We, we don't run across too many people who are stone blind from birth. But we do run across people who are desperately poor. And when we do, it's very interesting the questions that we ask. Why are they so poor? What kind of bad choices have they been making? Shouldn't they learn some responsibility before we help them? If we help them, aren't we just perpetuating the welfare mentality? How do, how do we know they're not pulling the wool over our eyes? What, what if they're going to waste the help that we give them? How, how do we know they're going to be properly thankful for the help that we give them? And, and we think we're being good stewards, but in reality, isn't this good stewardship at the expense of compassion? This is kind of real to me because I just got back from two weeks in Zambia, which is one of the poorest countries in Africa. And this is a major problem there, but to some degree it's here as well. 
In the midst of all the wrangling over responsibility, we can't forget the thing that Jesus focused on. What Jesus focused on was, here's a guy who's helpless, he's poor, he's suffering, and Jesus was moved with compassion. And when we're faced with people whose lives are in utter ruins, rather than laboring to figure out how it happened, let's remember that they're vulnerable, they're miserable, they're hopeless, and they're desperate, and let's be moved with compassion on them the way Jesus was. There's, there's a great illustration of this in, in uh, Les Miserables, uh, Jean Valjean, was released from prison after stealing bread to feed his family. And so he's, he's desperate, he winds up spending the night in the manse of a priest, and during the night he seizes all the silver and he takes off. And the police catch him the next day and arrest him and drag him back to the priest. And they said, does this guy steal all the silver? And the priest says, no, I gave it to him. That's mercy. That's compassion. That's, that's recognizing the, the, the terrible plight and, and, and taking whatever minor steps that you could take to alleviate that. And by the way, who, who should better display the love of God and the compassion of Jesus toward the poor and the desperate than, than the followers of Jesus? But see, at this point, we're not seeing this in the disciples. They're thinking like the friends of Job, and the response is judgment, not compassion. Their only concern is, look, somebody sinned here. Who was it? Okay, that's the first group, the disciples. Now, here's the second group, and that's the neighbors. And you notice, they're skeptical. Verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, well, it is he. And others said, oh, no, he's like him. And he kept saying, I am, I'm the man. So they said to him, well, then how were your eyes open? He said, the man made, called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes, and he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and received my sight. They said, well, where is he? He said, I don't know. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. So they saw him walking back from the pool of Siloam where Jesus had sent him to wash the mud off his eyes, and he's striding along like and see. He's not got his hands out, feeling his way. He's not tap-tapping with a white cane. Nobody's guiding him along. And he looks like the blind beggar guy, but, but it can't be. He must be somebody else. He must be somebody who looks like him. Or maybe he's a relative we haven't met. Or maybe it's a ghost. Whoever it is, we know this for sure, he's not the blind guy who's been sitting here for all these years. It can't be. Because people who are blind from birth don't all of a sudden start seeing again. We know that for a fact. And he kept insisting, I'm the guy, I'm the guy. And they kept insisting, no, you're not, no, you're not. Finally, he said, they said, well, then how'd you get your vision back? And he explained the whole mud thing. And they said, well, where is he? He said, I don't know. They say, ah, we thought so. Now you come along and explain this to the Pharisees. Now the, now the bottom line here is they could not, they would not believe that it could happen. They assumed that he was lying. Stone blind people don't regain their sight. And if you can see, then you're not the guy who used to beg along the road here. See, see the world doesn't believe in miracles. That's because they don't know God. And God placed that man alongside that road in order to display his power, and they refused to see it. They refused to believe that God can change lives. And I'm wondering if some of you sitting here today don't think the same way. You bought into the wisdom of the world that says once you're an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic for life. You'll never not be an alcoholic until the day you die, whether you're still drinking or not. 
The world insists that since once you commit a sexual sin, you need to be on the criminal sexual offense registry for the rest of your life because that offense defines you. That is who you are, and that's what you'll always be. We tell you that homosexuals can be restored to normal heterosexuality, and you say that's not possible. We tell you that people can break the pattern of verbal and physical abuse that they grew up with, and you say, give me a break, that doesn't happen. We tell you liars have been turned into truth tellers, thieves into givers, porno addicts into students of scripture, and you say, oh yeah, whatever. See, the world shakes their head at Christianity and they groan about how closed-minded we are. They heap disdain on Christians who can't open their minds to perverted lifestyles, while their own minds are tightly closed to the idea of a God who can change lives. Who really has the closed mind? The greatest testimony to the truth of Christianity is the radical transformation that comes when people surrender to God, Zacchaeus. I mean, he was a scumbag tax collector who repented and then restored everything that he'd scammed fourfold. The disciples were uneducated, unlearned, ignorant men. And yet they turned the world upside down. The apostle Paul, who was a murderer, became a missionary, who was a persecutor, became a preacher. Some of the people sitting next to you in church this morning. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anybody be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were, past tense, some of you, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God changes lives. Change is possible. That's the very thing God specializes in. Bitterness and revenge gives way to forgiveness. Angry people learn gentleness. Liars become truth tellers. Greedy become givers. Proud become humble. Lazy become workers. Rude become respectful. Gossips and slanders learn to keep their mouths shut. So here's a man who's been born blind. Now he can see. He's vibrating with happiness. And they're giving him the third degree. We don't believe you. Who are you really? Where's the compassion? Don't expect to see it from the world. That's group number two. Here's group number three. It's the Pharisees. And they were furious. Verse 14 now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, well, obviously this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a man who is such a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, well, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight. What in the world could be going on inside their bony little heads? I mean, here's a man who's no longer a burden on society. He's no longer an object of pity. He's no longer suffering in despair and hopelessness. He's been given a stupendous gift. An unbelievable miracle has taken place. The guy's been given a new lease on life. And are they happy for him? No, they're downright furious. Why? Because it was the Sabbath. I mean, we have rules about the Sabbath around here. You can't heal people on the Sabbath. You can only keep them from getting worse. 
If you help them get better, you've done work, and that's a sin against God. You should have waited till the next day. And, by the way, you can't be making mud pies on the Lord's Day, no matter how little they are. That's work, too, and you have sinned against the holy God of heaven, and we're here to condemn you for your wickedness. No wonder Jesus blasted these guys. They were heartless. They were utterly without compassion. They were blinded by the rules. And, by the way, they were the religious elite. There are times when some of us have strayed into the ways of the Pharisees. We equate our thoughts with God's thoughts. And we assume that anybody who doesn't think like us is wrong. And others can tell when we fall into that trap. You know how? Because of compassion, we get upset. Somebody's going through a divorce, and instead of coming alongside them, we withdraw from them and we exclude them. Somebody gets saved and comes waltzing into church, and we can't believe how disgusting they look. Spiky hair and leather miniskirts and tattoos and black lipstick, and we shudder in horror and wonder what's happening to our nice little church. That's the spirit of the Pharisees. Instead of compassion, there was condemnation. Jesus healed the man. They attacked him. They, they condemned the deed because it had been done on the Sabbath. Verse 16, this man is not from God. He doesn't keep our Sabbath rules. They assumed there was a conspiracy going on. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been born blind, so they called in his parents to try to figure out what's going on, what kind of a scam are you trying to pull here? They engaged in argumentum ad hominem, attacking Jesus' character. Verse 16, this man is not from God. They threatened excommunication. In verse 22, anybody who confesses that Jesus is the Christ would be put out of the synagogue, which means persona non grata, excommunication, restraining order, the whole thing. They led the witness. They said, give glory to God, verse 24. In other words, if you hold to this story, you're not glorifying God. You're lying. They prejudged Jesus. We know that this man is a sinner. They intimidated and badgered the witness, verse 28. They reviled the man for the things that he was saying. They were self-righteous. They said, you can't teach us a thing, verse 34. And also in verse 34, they attacked the credibility of the witness. They said, you were born in utter sin. Jesus was moved with compassion. They were moved with indignation. At a church I served in years ago, there was an increasing number of black folks moving into the neighborhood, and we won some of them to the Lord and baptized them. But we couldn't keep them. So I hired a black seminary student to come on our staff and help us reach these people. And some longtime members of the church got me in a corner and they were very upset. They were afraid that this guy might try to marry one of our nice white girls. And they were afraid he'd bring all kinds of unfit people into the church. And I said, you mean the kind of unfit people that Jesus hung out with, publicans and sinners, you know, that sort? Is that what you're worried about? Years ago, I was spending time with a lady who was dying of cancer and hospice had been called in. My wife and I met with her on a weekly basis and we got to know the hospice nurse. In the course of our conversations, we invited her to church and she said, you know, I, th I think I'll come. Uh, my husband and I are between churches. And so, so they came, they came once and then they came twice and I never saw them again. And of course, all I knew was her first name and I couldn't get any more than that because of HIPAA. And uh, so a year later, I was with somebody else who was in hospice care, and she was the nurse. And I said, so you, you came twice, and then you never came back. And she said, well, the second time we came, uh, a lady talked to us after the service and said, now, if you're intending to come here to church, you're going to have to wear a dress, and he's going to have to wear a suit and tie. That's what Pastor Murray requires. If I could have found out who said that, 
I'd have been in trouble. I never said that. Nobody ever said anything like that, I would hope. Listen, depending on what kind of mood we're in, any of us can sink into moments of Phariseeism. We, we have to guard ourselves. We have to guard one another against this insidious disease. Listen, these people were not glad for the marvelous work that God had done in this poor man's life. They were mad because it wasn't done in the way that they thought it should be done. That's group number three. Here's group number four. It's the parents. Now, the parents were in self-preservation mode. Look at verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he not see? The parents answered, well, we, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Now, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anybody should confess Jesus to be Christ... He was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, ask him. He's of age. What, what, what a sad recitation that is. Their son has just been released from a lifetime of darkness, from a prison of sightlessness, and they're worried about what's going to happen to us. Were they thrilled about this miracle? We, we don't see it yet. What we see is fear of man, the self-preservation instinct. They were desperate. Deathly afraid of being cut off from the temple, which means no longer having any access to God. Yeah. Have they never heard of Psalm 118, verse 6? The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Were these people Christ followers? Well, they weren't exactly confessing that Jesus was the Christ. On the other hand, maybe they didn't see what happened. Maybe they only discovered it when word raced through the neighborhood. But the reality is, their son, who's been hopelessly blind all of his life, can now see perfectly. That should have told them something. Now, if they were Christ followers, you would expect them to duplicate the spirit of Peter and John before the religious authorities in Acts 4, when they courageously announced, look, you can beat us all you want, but we're not going to stop preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. What the parents should have been saying is, well, we didn't exactly see what happened, but our son was born blind. He lived blind for 38 years, and now he can see perfectly. If that's not a miracle from God, then we don't know what is. Since only God can do miracles, this man must, must be sent from God. Beat us, berate us, put us out of the temple. But that's the truth. That's what they should have said. Not, well, we really don't know what happened. You should ask him instead of us. Here's a critical truth in Matthew 10. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. You don't lose your salvation if you refuse to confess Jesus as the Christ. You never had it. Why is this such an issue? Because the person who is unwilling to identify with Christ because of mockery or, or whatever that you're, you're afraid of, the person who is unwilling to identify with Christ because of fear of man has a far higher regard for man than they do for Christ. That's not a follower of Christ. So Jesus saw this poor blind guy, had compassion on him. The parents saved their compassion for their, themselves. They, they feared the religious authorities far more than they feared God. Okay, that's the four groups. Now, Let's talk about the blind guy. 
Because there's a fascinating progression in this passage I want you to see. The blind guy is moving through this episode from awe to faith. He starts by calling Jesus a man. Verse 11, he said, a man called Jesus anointed my eyes. Now, Jesus was a magnificent man, of course. He was a man's man. And the blind guy thought he was a very wonderful man to be able to do such an incredible thing. Verse 17, now he calls Jesus a prophet. Now, a prophet is somebody who is very close to God. He's penetrated the inner counsels of God and he receives revelation from God. And if there's ever a man who spoke with the voice of God, it certainly was this Jesus. Then look at verse 38. He came to believe and confess that Jesus was the Lord. The more he was around Jesus, the more time he had to reflect on what Jesus did and the words that he said, he came to the inescapable conclusion that Jesus was more than a man, more than a great prophet. He was no less than the God-man, the Messiah, the Son of God, and he worshiped him. That's what believers do. They worship Christ instinctively and unashamed. Now listen, he did, verse 34, he did get himself excommunicated. They did throw him out of the temple, barred his entry there. There, there is a cost to his face, but he made the right choice. He chose the Son of God over the fear of man or the empty promises of an empty religion. Okay, so now back to the beginning of the chapter. When the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned that this man should be born blind? Do you remember what Jesus said? In verse 3, he said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, long before time began, in the councils of the Godhead, they decreed that a man would be born blind, live that way for 38 years, so that everybody in the entire city would know that he's the blind guy, and he's helpless, and that on a certain day, Jesus would walk down this street in order to display the immense power of God. That's a God moment. But that God moment also served to expose the hearts of five groups of people. The disciples, theologically curious, but without sympathy. The neighbors, skeptical, and refused to believe what they had seen. The Pharisees, who felt threatened by the works of Christ and hardened their hearts to grace. And the parents, only worried about themselves. The blind man, however, embraced Jesus and worshiped him as his savior. I got to ask you, do you see yourself in any of these five groups? Blind and callous to the plight of the poor and the suffering like the disciples? Tell them to get a job. Do you find it hard to believe that God can change people? I mean, really, radically transform people? Are you set in your ways and expect that anybody who claims to be a Christian is going to look like you, act like you, think like you, like what you like, despise what you like? That's the spirit of the Pharisees. Worried about what people will think if I start talking about God and acknowledging God and telling people I'm a Christ follower like the parents who are worried about what people would think? Or perhaps you're identifying with the blind man. You're becoming aware of the fact that God is working in your heart. Changes are taking place. Awesome things are happening in your soul. And you're ready to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And if so, you've come to the right place. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this episode that you caused John to include in his gospel. 
And Lord, you knew what we needed to see in here, and you've shown it to us. And now, Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to examine our own hearts today, Lord, to see what's there and what ought not to be there. For some of us, uh, this needs to be a change point. We need to change our thinking. We need to think differently about the people that you place in our world. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to exhibit the spirit of Jesus Christ everywhere we go, everything that we say, everything that we do, and in, in every interaction with people, both believers and unbelievers. I pray that you would help us to adopt the spirit of Jesus Christ as we've seen it in here. So, Lord, I pray that you'd convict us. Help us not to just lightly let these thoughts go as we go about the rest of our day, but I pray, Lord, that you would uh, inspire us and convict us because as the end of the age draws near and as the darkness gathers, more desperately than ever, we need to exert, exhibit the spirit and the light of your son, Jesus. And I pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.